Exodus chapter 20, the third commandment, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. With the first commandment, we learn who we are to worship. We learn who we are to worship. With the second commandment, we learn how we are to worship. How we are to worship. And with the third commandment, we learn in what manner we are to worship. In what manner are we to worship? And so I'm going to break this down for you with four major headings after this introduction. I'm going to speak to you about Scripture, the essential nature of God, the names of God, and the attributes of God. Those will be the four major headings this morning. The Scripture, the essential nature of God, the names of God, and the attributes of God. Not taking the Lord's name in vain is not a devotional teaching. It is not a teaching that primarily needs to be landed in the heart. It's one that has to be landed in the mind and in the hands. And so... That's how we will deal with it. And so let me just give you a little explanation of some of these meanings of words by way of introduction. He says in the passage, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. One of the things I want you to notice is the word Lord that is mentioned there is the word Yahweh. And then the word Elohim is the word for God, which is your personal God. This is not the God of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Moabites, the Skeeterbites. It's not that God. This is the God of the covenant people and the only God. God's people. The God of His covenant people. And what it says here is simply this, it's speaking of what manner we are to worship Him. And it is in regards to respect for the name of God, which speaks, listen to me, to His very being. Now it might surprise you that, for example, the name James means supplanter. It comes from the Hebrew Jacob. Egan means fiery. That's just what it means. That's what it means. With perseverance and prudence and fortitude. That's what it means. Names mean something. God's name means something. The covenant God, Yahweh, our Elohim, means something. And what does it mean? Well, if you do not respect the name of God. In other words, it says, you shall not take the Lord your God's name in vain. That means to take it and use it frivolously. 
or with frivolity. It means to use it in such a way that it distracts from His supreme wisdom, His supreme power, His supreme justice, or the fact that He is and completely the totality of truth itself without limitation. And so there's ways to abuse it. There's ways to abuse it. One, the Bible tells us, is through a vow of falsehood. You claim God's name and yet you say, I swear to God I'm going to do this with no intention of doing it. That is a falsehood. Number two, you can make a frivolous vow which would be any other vow. Well, by God, I'm getting up and I'm going to church this morning. That's a frivolous vow. Uh, You can do it through irreverent use of speech. I don't think that needs an explanation. You can do it by treating Him disrespectfully. That is, naming the name of Christ, but but not departing from the life of iniquity. Now this is where the rubber hits the road on that one. That has to do specifically with what we spoke about last week about being born again. I was just reading, I had enough time this morning, so in my study before I came out here, I just did my morning devotional. Everything was ready to go, and I did my morning devotion, and one of the things that struck me was that there are so many who try to develop the works of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. Well, the fruit of the Spirit is not the result of human effort or works. It's the fruit of being born again. You can fake it, but you can't reproduce it and it will not last. You cannot bear the fruit of the Spirit if you're not born again. And one of the the last fruit of the Spirit is self-control. You can try as much as you want, but until you are born again, you will never, ever develop the spirit of self-control. It's not in you. You cannot do it. It's human. The the self-control is of God. And so therefore, when somebody claims or prays in Jesus' name or talks about Jesus or does this and the life has absolutely no semblance of authentic Christianity, my advice is always stop that for your sake. Because this passage is the only of of all the commandments, the only one with a fatal warning. He says, I will not hold you guiltless. Do not take my name in vain. It would be better off for you never to mention it than to mention it in vanity. And we live in a culture that uses that name. Back in the days when I was a pilot and when I was training for the airlines, we had the, the awesome, disturbing privilege to listen to cockpit voice recorders before the plane crashed. And so you could hear what the men or women in the cockpit said right before they met their maker. One thing is common through all of them was Jesus Christ. Whether they knew they were going to meet Him or not, they were going to meet Him, either as judge or as Savior. But right before it went into the tank or wherever, you would hear a four-letter word and you would hear Jesus Christ. And that's just using it in vain. But you see, people that think they're Christians, believe they're Christians with all of their heart, 
because they've, they've had that disease of born-againism, as we talked about last week. They use it, and I will want you to know something. If you're not born again, and you think you are, and you wind up in heaven before God at the great white throne judgment, you just remember, you heard it right here. Every time you use that name, you used it in vanity, and He will not hold you guiltless. Jesus is the name that is the sweetest name in the world to those who have been born again. Not those who raised their hand, prayed a prayer, walked an aisle and made a decision. That one scares me. This very concept scares me for the people I love. They are treating the name of Jesus wrongly because they name a name that they do not know. And their loved ones tell them they do, but they don't. And the evidence is the life. Number five, to make a promise to God and break it. That's Matthew 5, 33. To tell God you're going to do this. Have any of you ever done that? I've done it. I was like, God, if you get me out of this mess, I'll, I'll do this. I'll become, a, I'll become a missionary to the Congo. That's taking His name in vain. But here is the most severe of them all. The sixth way that you can take the name of the Lord in vain is to worship God with your mouth and not with your heart. You will not be held guiltless for that. You have used His name in vain. Because His name is holy. There is nothing like Him and I want you to know something. He says right here in this scripture, He is the avenger of those who take His name in vain. He will avenge His name. And so using God's name frivolously, He says in the passage, I'm not going to hold you guiltless. And here's the thing I want us to see and now I will deal with these four things to prove up the case. It's simply this, your mouth reveals the state of your heart. And how you use God's name shows how you use His heart. And when you misuse it, or when you curse, or when you say oaths, or when you give vows by swearing, you are demonstrating that your heart is not right with God. Look with me over here in Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus is talking in uh, the Sermon on the Mountain and I want to use this as an illustration and then I will give you these four points. Matthew chapter 5 beginning in verse 33 Jesus then says again you have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oaths at all, either by heaven or for it is the throne of God. So even Jesus Christ here is saying this. Don't do it. God has said it in the Old Testament, in the commandments. Jesus is absolutely making it crystal clear there's no ambiguity to this. But I say to you, make no oaths at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of His feet, 
or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your statements be yes, yes or no, no. Anything beyond that is evil. See, God's people are known as people who are trustworthy. And when they say yes, it means something. They say they're going to do something, they follow through. You can't even do that if you're not born again. Because our nature is so fallen. Our nature is so corrupt. We say we're going to do something, we don't do it. Paul, the apostle, says in Romans 8, I don't do the things I want to do. I don't do the things I should do. And the things I should do, I don't do. And the things I shouldn't do, I do. And the things I don't want to do, I do. I do, I do, and I don't, I don't. What hope is there for a wretched man such as I? And he says, but thanks be to God for the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the declaration of a believer. Especially one who spent his life as an adult prior to meeting Jesus, locking up, persecuting, even to the death of Christian believers. You talk about a man that's walked through some shoes that you wonder, could he ever get over it? He did. How was it that the Apostle Paul could go from being Saul of Tarsus, the great persecutor of the church, to being the great apostle of the church? He was born again. He was born again. So, because this is a work of God, and because this is not a devotional commandment, then we must look at it from the perspective of not the heart, but the mind to the hands, to the will. So first of all, let me give you a treatment of Scripture. Because Scripture is where this whole thing begins. So write down number one, Scripture, and letter A under that, Revelation and Scripture. Revelation and Scripture. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. The Bible does not contain special revelation. The Bible is special revelation. And it is used for that purpose. The prophets and the apostles received the message from God long before it was committed to writing. And the term of revelation itself may be used to denote that the Bible as a whole, the whole complex of redemptive truths and facts with a proper historical setting that is found in the Scripture has a divine guarantee, a divine guarantee of its truth in the fact that it is infallibly inspired by the Holy Spirit. In its grammatical, historical context, the Bible will not lead a person to error, it will lead them to salvation. That's called the perpiscuity of Scripture. Don't write that down. That was extra. So you have Scripture regarding revelation and Scripture, but number two under this, or letter B, Scripture proof for inspiration of the Scripture. The whole Bible is given by inspiration of God. The whole Bible. And as such, the infallible rule of faith and practice for all of mankind. And the doctrine of inspiration even here is denied. It's denied. 
It calls for, no, we need to have a special consideration for it. And it, it's like every other one based on Scripture, except when you deny inspiration, then what that means is that you say, then I must impose upon the Scripture the interpretation of man and his inventions. This is Roman church doctrine. That is the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. The church supersedes the Scripture. Thomas Aquinas, their great theologian, even said, we can have the church without the Scripture. There was one other group during the Reformation known as the Neo-Reformers during the Reformation, or the Radical Reformers, that denied this concept. They are called the Anabaptists. The Anabaptists did not believe that Scripture in and of itself could be preached without an external necessity to be added to it. And consequently, that's what started the largest Protestant denomination in this country. They'll tell you they're inerrant, infallible, and inspired, but they will not say it is sufficient. And when you do not believe the Scripture is made in such a way and written such a way that it testifies to itself and its own perfection, then what you believe is the Scripture is not necessary or sufficient for anything you're dealing with. This is the majority of people in our country. That's why easy believism and born-againism has run rampant. I've got, to, I've got to conjole you. I've got to make you understand. Listen, sometimes you leave here and you don't understand what I've said. That one can be because I didn't prepare enough to say it, but number two, it can also be because of what the Lord said, I have taught the parable so that the unbelieving could not understand it. And we even read in Mark just a moment, he j just a moment ago, Jesus Christ says, let them with ears to hear, hear. I will take responsibility for my communications. I will not for the Spirit. If you leave confused, if you leave where you don't understand, you may be just like the people were that heard the parables and they were told specifically so they would not understand. And Jesus goes even farther saying, so they might not believe. But those that are His will hear and they will understand. And so Scripture's proof for the inspiration of Scripture is found. It says, listen, over and over in the Scripture, over and over again, the prophets were conscious to bringing the word of the Lord and introduced the message to the people as thus saith the Lord. The word came unto me, they would say, Jeremiah. Paul speaks at the word as taught as Spirit taught words in 1 Corinthians. He claimed Christ was speaking to him, described his message to the Thessalonians as the Word of God, the epistle of Hebrews. For example, often quotes passages of the Old Testament as the Word of God, and over and over and over again. The Bible speaks to its own inspiration. It can stand on its own authority. But then there's letter C, the nature of inspiration. You say, what's this got to do with the third commandment? You'll see the nature of inspiration. There's three. 
One is the belief known as mechanical inspiration. I want you to know this. It's important to you. I believe it's important for your souls. Mechanical inspiration simply says, and some I'm sure believe this, it has sometimes been presented as if God literally dictated to the human author of the Bible to write and the human author was completely passive. Like I'm typing on my computer and what goes on the screen, it is completely passive. Whatever I write goes on the screen. There's no question. Well, that's called mechanical inspiration. That's not correct. There is the idea of dynamic inspiration. Dynamic inspiration simply means the process of inspiration is affecting only the writer, that the writer was somehow this superhuman kind of being, this super enlightened one, and so therefore because he had so much enlightenment and so much in his character, he was able to write these writings and no other human could have done it, and so his mental and spiritual life were strengthened to such a degree that they could do it. That's not true either. God used common men. Common men. And so that leads us to organic inspiration. And I want you to write that one down. Organic inspiration means this, the proper conception of inspiration holds that the Holy Spirit acted upon the writer of the Bible in an, in, in an organic way. That is, He worked with the writers of the Scripture in harmony with the law of their own inner being the law of their own inner being, using them just the way they are. That's why when you read Jeremiah, it reads different than Peter, 1 Peter. And when you read 2 Peter, it reads different than 1 Peter. Some have questioned, is it the same author? It is. But by the time 2 Peter was written, from the time 1 Peter was written, Peter had progressed in his sanctification. He was changed and changed more. So here is the last part regarding the Scripture that you understand this in relation to this third commandment. It is the extent, letter D, the extent of inspiration. Most today believe in what is called partial inspiration. I hear this all the time. Here it is. You'll recognize this. that the Bible is under the influence of rationalism. When you see blind Bartimaeus beside the road in one of the gospel accounts, and then in another account there's another blind guy with him, the two accounts are not in dispute or contradiction. One is telling a different story. When you see those kind of things, you say, well, I have to rationalize it. I don't have to rationalize it. Scripture stands on it. Oh, well, they're going to think you're an idiot. Well, folks, listen, uh, I was condemned of that a long time ago. I'm a fool for Jesus. I believe this book. It's why I'm not in that denomination I used to be. There was no room for a man in that denomination that believed in the sufficiency of Scripture. There wasn't. I'm not talking about the church. I'm talking about the denomination. There was no room. Others affirm that the moral and religious teachings of Scripture are inspired, but the historical parts contain several chronological, archaeological, and scientific mistakes. That is turning out to be false as well because science is catching up with the Bible now. 
There is still another way in which inspiration of Scripture is limited, namely by assuming that the thoughts were inspired while the choice of words were left up to the wisdom of the human author. And that's wrong because here is the idea. Letter, the next one is what is known as plenary inspiration. Plenary means everything, and so this is what that means. It says that everything that is written in the Scripture is plenary inspiration. Every thought, every line, every center, everything, God inspired it with plenary inspiration. But that's not what we're talking about. He inspired every single word. So when he says, You shall not take the Lord Yahweh, your God, Elohim, in vain. He makes it very clear to the recipient in that day exactly what he meant. It had no application whatsoever to any people that were not part of the covenant of Jehovah. None. And so the doctrine of verbal plenary inspiration is fully warranted by Scripture. That is the basis on why I teach the way I teach. Every word matters. And you have, last of all, the perfection of Scripture. Just get this. Rome, Rome has taught and teaches that the Bible owes its authority to the church. Rome teaches that the Bible owes its authority to the church and the reformers maintain that it has authority in itself because it is organically inspired with verbal plenary inspiration. But the, reform, but the Catholic Church in the, it back then and it still to this day says that the Bible owes its authority to the church and that's why you don't see them carrying the Bible. It's not necessary. Church teaching is what's important. They also upheld the necessity of Scripture as being divinely appointed means of grace over against the Roman Catholics who asserted that the church had no absolute need of it and some of the Protestant sects who exalted the inner light and the word of the Holy Spirit in their hearts of the people of God at the expense of Scripture. Who's that? The Anabaptists. What are they? Congregational. They cannot make a decision unless they vote. That is why you vote in a Baptist church. You didn't know that. You know what? I didn't either. I, was, I remember right where I was sitting at Cracker Barrel when I read that and I nearly jumped over the table. I said I was duped. But then on the other hand, I realized I've never had that spirit. The whole reason they gather and congregationalists gather to vote is to say we need a way to design, to define this is what God's will wants us to do. Guess where they got that from? Roman Catholics. Guess what the Roman Catholics did? They said, well, wait a minute. How do you know when you're right or wrong? Well, we'll have a majority. Okay, well, what's a majority? Uh, it's 66.6%. Well, what if you don't get that? Is it the will of God? No, maybe we shouldn't. We'll do a simple majority, 51 to 49. And they decide, you know what, that's too hard. So what we will do is we will give it, we will name a man a pope and he will decide for all of us. That's how the pope came about. Because the church had to be above the scripture. Scripture could not stand on its own in their mind. Well, the Baptists, they, the Anabaptists said, to heck with that. We're not doing that. We're going to get together and we're going to decide that this is what the Bible says. 
So the Bible says you cannot be a deacon and be divorced. I've served a church with one man that's been divorced five times and had a wife uh, have an abortion. But his deacon, masons, all kinds of stuff. And the reality of it is, as you look at it and you say, but the Bible says, and so they have concluded that's the way it is. And listen, that's nothing more than what I told you last week. That's just trying to make goats worship God like sheep. So you have to come to deal with the Scripture. You have to deal with it. Because if you don't believe the Scripture, the third commandment means nothing. Because if you don't believe it, to take God's name in vain is then to do what others have done that take His name in vain. Jesus Christ didn't even take the Word of God in vain, the Scripture in vain. So therefore, those not in Christ take His name in vain. Because to them the Scripture isn't serious enough. And so, let me then speak to you on the second part. The, the essential nature of God. We see first of all the Scriptures. Let's talk about the essential nature of God. Number one, write down the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God. We just read from Romans chapter 1 in our confessional time. The possibility of knowing God has been, not, has been denied on several grounds. But while it is true that man can never comprehend or know God fully, it does not follow that he can have no knowledge of Him at all. Every society and culture that has been found has been worshiping something. He can know Him apart he can know Him though only in part, but nevertheless with that knowledge it is real and true. And this is, this is possible because God has chosen to reveal Himself. Our knowledge of God is twofold. Number one, man has an inborn knowledge of God. Write it down. Man has an inborn knowledge of God. Now I want you to take yourself back to the foot of, of uh, Mount Moriah. No, not Mount Moriah. I want you to go back there where the Ten Commandments are given. Be at the foot. You're hearing, you're those people, and Moses comes down, and he is now telling you this third commandment. He's probably saying the same thing. He's saying to them, you have an inborn knowledge of God. You left Egypt with an inborn knowledge of God. And he delivered a nation. There was a national covenant made with Israel. The covenant that would be picked up in Jeremiah, as you later see, is an individual covenant he makes with the Israel of God. Not a nation, but a people. Paul calls him. Paul calls those people the Jew of Jews, the Hebrews of Hebrews, the teacher of teachers, the Pharisees of He says the Jews of God are the elect. Those are his words. That's not mine. That's what he calls them. And so there's this twofold idea. Man has this inborn knowledge. God does not merely mean that in virtue of His creation and the image of God. He, man has a natural capacity to know there's God. There is God. But then there's something else. Number two under this, and, and I said this knowledge of God is twofold. One, man has an inborn knowledge of God, but number two, God's general and special revelation of God. This is not obtained without effort on man's part, particularly the effort of a preacher. 
but is the result of his conscious and sustained pursuit of knowledge. While this knowledge is possible only because man is born with the capacity to know God, it carries him far beyond the limits of his inborn knowledge of God. The second thing I want to say about this idea, the first one being the essential nature of God, the knowledge of God, here's the second one. You'll see how this fits the third commandment. Number two, the knowledge of God as known from special revelation. It is not possible for you and I to define God. That's why we're prohibited in the second commandment from drawing Him. He's not to be represented with, through the eyes, it's, it's through the Word. We, but we can give a general description of His Spirit. I want to just give these to you, I'm not going to explain them. Here they are. This is God's general revelation. God is a pure Spirit. That's just general. Anyone can know that. God is a spirit. He's a pure spirit. The catechism says, what is God? God is a spirit, hath not a body like man. He's a spirit. God is personal. He is personal. He's a personal God. That's Elohim. If you're in Christ, He's Elohim to you. God, the fact that God is spirit also involves His personality. He's personal. Number three, God is infinitely perfect. This, is, this bears a month of Sundays. God is distinguished from all His creatures by infinite perfection. There is none like Him. None. Anywhere. His being and virtues are free from all limitations and imperfections. He is not only boundless and limitless, but He is absolutely morally perfect and glorious in majesty. Last, God as His perfection. God and His perfection are one. They are one. Simplicity is one of the fundamental characteristics of God. That simply means He is not composed of different parts. And also that His being and attributes are one. He is one and the same. That's why when people say things like this, they say, you know, well, we just need to remember that God is love. What they're doing is they are saying that the love of God as they understand it somehow supersedes all of His other benefits. It doesn't work like that. He is, I am. So let me review what I've shared with you. Just look at your sheet of paper. We talked about the Scripture, the revelation in Scripture, the Scripture proofs for inspiration, the nature, the extent, and the perfection of Scripture. Then we did the essential nature of God, the knowledge of God. There's an inborn knowledge, and there is God's general and special revelation of who He is. And we have seen here that the knowledge of God is known by special revelation. He's a pure spirit. He's personal. He's infinite. And He's perfect. And now, we go back to the beginning. The fact that God uses His personal name in the command and the fact that He addresses Himself as the, as the God of the people whom He is addressing leads us to the third point, the name of God. Now, I'm not going to give you an exhaustive list on that, 
But I want to show you some things regarding the Old and the New Testament. First of all, the Old Testament names of God. I want you to listen to this. He uses the word, I am the Lord your God. The word Lord, your God. Your God is the word El or Elohim. E-L-O-H-I-M. Listen to this. This is important. This is His personal name that indicates that He is strong, mighty, and should be reverenced. This name comes from another name used in the Old Testament, Elion, E-L-Y-O-N. Listen to this. Because Elohim is related to Elion, it points to His exalted nature as the Most High and that which is regarded as only worthy of reverence and worship. Nothing else. Remember, a name means something. This is a name He uses that is specific only to His people, not the lost. Only His people. Then you have number three, the name Adonai. Adonai, A-D-O-N-A-I. This is the general name of God over creation. It means ruler and possessor of all creation. Then you have El Shaddai. El Shaddai. Some of you are thinking Sandy Patty. No, El Shaddai, God. S-H-A-D-D-A-I. This, listen, El Shaddai communicates and stresses His divine greatness. We know nothing of this greatness. This is divine greatness. But this is what its purpose is. It is designed using that name to give comfort and blessing for His people. So El Shaddai is not the name of the God, is not a name for the people that are not the Jews of God. People that know me call me James. But out in public, I'm Dr. Egan. The people that know me call me James. We know, those of us in Christ know God. We can say, El Shaddai. But those who are not in Christ and say, El Shaddai, guess what you just did? You violated the third commandment. You say, is that why we're doing all this? That's exactly why we're doing all this. Scripture is the authority. And you have the authority of its inspiration. You have the attributes of God. You have the names of God. So listen to this. Number five, under here, the Old Testament names of God is Yahweh. This appears the first time in Exodus 3, 14 and 15, and it expresses this. I remember a dear friend of mine, a sweet lady I knew, she came to faith, I believe, in Christ years after we ministered together in, in post. I called her Gigi, and Gigi would always argue with me and tell me that God never changes. He cannot change. 
And I would argue with her about, yes, he cannot change as a leopard can't change its spots. And she would come back and said, yes, but God relented or God repented and did all that stuff. And we just kept having it until we both agreed to go look at what his name is. Let me tell you something about the name Yahweh. This is what it means. And this is why the commandment is given in that name. I the Lord. He doesn't say, I am the Lord. In the Hebrew it is, I the Lord. I Yahweh. Now think about this. I Yahweh, your Elohim, your personal God, do not take my name in vain. What name? Yahweh, Elohim, El Shaddai. Watch this. Yahweh means God is always the same. Say, well, we can do this because Jesus is here. What's our Greek word, class? Baloney. If you're always the same, you're always the same. Now, there's a lot of people that are trying to change something about themselves physically in their appearance or, or, or whatever they are. But if you got an X and a Y chromosome, whatever you were, that make, whatever that makes you is an X and a Y, you're still an X and Y. Now you, can you, can, you can change it any way you want to, but you're still an X and a Y. But don't worry, they're going to figure out a way to change that. And when that happens, I'm hoping it's tic-tac-toe and God wins and we're gone. But in the meantime, we'll stick with the truth. And so this means what? Yahweh means unchangeable. Remember the song, Great is Thy Faithfulness? There is no shadow of turning in Thee. All I have needed, Thou hast provided, and so forth. So that's the Old Testament names of God for God's people. And in relation to this, He says, I, the unchanging God, my name means me, who does not change, who is your personal God, you will not take my name in vain. You will not use it frivolously with your mouth, with your thoughts, with your heart, with your actions, with your deeds, or your attitudes. You will reverence my name because I will never change how I feel about it. Oh, makes sense. Right? Okay? Well, let me show you something. You should be grateful, and I know you are. But before you leave today, I want you to take this with you. Because this has over 150 Bible verses from the Westminster Larger Catechism on, it says, which is the third commandment, what is required of the third commandment, and what are the sins forbidden by the third commandment. And you can take this home and go look at every single Bible verse, and you can say, well, that stuff's written by men. If that's all you have to say about this, well, you must be born again. This is the Word of God. Tells you exactly. You know what it says here? What is sins are forbidden? It gives 38 footnotes, and most of them have two or three Bible verses. Go learn this. In the New Testament, three names. Theos, the Greek word, theos. It means in, in Christ, God is the God of each one of His children. That's what it means in the New Testament, theos, T-H-E-O-S. 
Theos. There's the name Kurios, K-U-R-I-O-S. It, it is the name of the Lord, a name that is applied not only to God, but also to Christ. It takes the place, listen to this, it takes the place, the word Kurios takes the place of the Hebrew name Adonai in Yahweh. That's why when doubting Thomas saw the resurrected Jesus and the holes in his hands and his feet in his side, he says, Ho Kurios Mu! Ho Theos Mu! The Lord, my Lord, the God, my God. He could have said it this way, the Yahweh, my Elohim. Isn't that cool? And then there's the name Pater, P-A-T-E-R, Pater, Father. The name Father is found in the Old Testament and expresses a special relation with God that He has with Israel. So in the New Testament, it is a more individual in that the point to God as the Father of all believers. That's what the New Testament does. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what's amazing that you see in the New Testament, especially when you read the Gospels, as when He tells them, and your Father and my Father, we are one. They had never heard of such thing, that God could be their Father. So you have the Scripture, you have the essential nature of God, you have the names of God, and last of all, last of all, and quickly, the attributes of God. This is why the third commandment is not to be violated. We have, his, we have the teaching of Scripture, we have the nature of God, we have the names of God, last of all, the attributes of God. There are those attributes of God which are known as incommunicable attributes. They are the attributes that cannot be communicated to the lost. They cannot be communicated. And these incommunicable attributes, listen to me, are stand in complete distinction between creature and created and the Creator. There is nothing in the created that exists that is in the incommunicable attributes of God. There is nothing in us. All of this that I'm about to show you, which is very small, is only found in Him. It is not in us. It never will be in us. It will not be in us when we're in heaven. Never ever. The incommunicable attributes. So here it is. The first one is His independence or self-existence. His self-existence. Let me just give you a definition. God has the ground of His existence in Himself. And unlike man, does not depend on anything outside of Himself. You and I will never attain that position. Ever. Not even in heaven. And certainly not in hell. There is the immutability of God. Immutability of God. That simply means this, He cannot change. That's His name, Yahweh. He is forever the same in His divine being and perfection and also His purposes and promises. When He says yes, that means yes. When He has a purpose, it will be fulfilled. He's immutable. It cannot be changed. You and I can be changed. We can fall out of bed and be changed. We can eat a, a big old piece of chocolate cake with ice cream uh, before church and be forever changed. So there is the immutability of God. Here's another one, the infinity of God. The infinity of God, that is that God is not subject to limitation. And I want you to learn it that way. 
God is not subject to limitation. He is absolute in His perfection. He is complete in His eternity. And He is majestic in His immensity. And last of all, the simplicity of God. The simplicity of God. You and I will never be simple. So hey, if you're confused by now, just know I'm not God. The simplicity of God. He is not composed of various parts such as a body and a soul in a man and for that reason He is not subject to division. He's not subject to any division. He's completely simple. Those are the incommunicable attributes. We will never have any of those. How do you say, James, where are you getting all this? The B-I-B-L-E. That's the book for me. Right? Number two, the communicable attributes of God. What is communicable? The communicable attributes of God are attributes of God that can be seen in His creation, particularly His highest creation, man, kind. There is some resemblance to this. Let me just give them to you very quickly. I'm not going to define them. I'm going to give them to you. Number one, the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God. Number two, the wisdom of God. The knowledge of God, the wisdom of God, the goodness of God. Number four, the love of God. The most important thing you could ever learn about God is this next one. The most important thing you could ever learn about God is the next one. Here it is. The holiness of God. The holiness of God. Boy, that's, that relates to the first, second, and third commandment, doesn't it? He's holy. Number five, the righteousness of God. We on earth want to always be right. We want to justify ourselves that our answer's right, that we're right, that we've done what's right. I remember telling a young man a long time ago, I said, you need to make a decision. Do you want to be right or do you want to be righteous? Because you're running everybody over and tearing down all the trees with the little cubs in it because you want everyone to think you're right. And the problem is, you're not righteous. And then I fired him. The righteousness of God. The veracity of God. The veracity of God means His truthfulness. You have got to come to a place. You either believe Him or you don't. And you can't believe Him halfway. It's all or nothing. And you can't believe Him all the way unless you're born again. He has to put a nature in you to change. He has to change you. He has to call you, regenerate you, and then you'll be converted. If you don't understand, listen to last week's sermon. I listened to it pretty good. I was like, I don't know who that guy is, but man, it's preaching to me. And last of all, the sovereignty of God. Which it is funny. The very people who believe that the Scripture is not sufficient, 
but believe in inerrancy, inspiration, and infallibility will be the very people that will tell you that God is not sovereign and in fact man must have free will because after all, whereas the Catholics say the church is over the Scripture, the Anabaptists say the free will is over the Scripture and I tell you that is not the testimony of Scripture and that is taking the name of the Lord in vain because it is not who He is. He is supreme over all things. And so I have Bible verses for every single thing I've told you all on these sheets of paper right here. And I will print them out for you and I will give them to you. I promise. And that's my yes means yes. It's not hard to do it. But I didn't want to take time and I still have 13 minutes to go. So let me conclude the message. Brothers and sisters... The passage here says you shall not take your Lord, the Lord's name in vain. You don't have to be in fear that you're taking the Lord's name in vain if He's not your God. You've got a whole lot more problems than that. you just got dead men testimony. The last, for the last 70 years in this country, people have just been patting each other's hands, telling them, this is all you got to do. I went to a funeral yesterday and just loved being there. Two old preachers, still pastoring. Old preachers, like old. Got off the ark preachers. Still preaching. Talking a little bit slow, slurring their speech a little bit. But old faithful men of God. And they're old Baptist preachers too. It's like, you survived. You have survived. And preaching, and one of the men said, during, his, during the sermon, he said, and you must be born again. And then he went into the raise the hand, walk the aisle, pray the prayer, make a decision. And I told a person I was sitting next to, I says, once you come to the place where you're really driving into Scripture and you're really learning, you have to remember that there was a time perhaps you did the same thing and we need to be gracious to those that are doing that. It doesn't ruin the message. Why? Because the message is supreme over the messenger. I've walked out of church many times. I, I want to preach the second commandment to you again. When I preached that sermon, I did not do it the way I intended to do it. It was on my heart. I did it, I thought, for another reason. And I may have to repent and preach it again. Because what I preached is not what... I made it too easy. And, uh, and I felt bad about it. But I then realized, you know, I don't have to do that because God's Word is sufficient because those with the ears to hear are going to hear it. And, and being born again will never, ever come apart from the preaching of the Word. And brothers and sisters, you done got that today. And a whole heap of doctrine that's good for you. You may not feel it devotionally in your heart. You're not meant to. This is a message to the will. And the will is controlled by the mind. And if we don't understand that Scripture is the authority, and if we don't understand the attributes of God, and we don't understand the names of God, then how in the world can we avoid the mistake of taking a holy God's name in vain? Well, for the last 45 minutes, I've endeavored to help you with that.